In March 2022, the Wesleyan Union of Student Employees made history by becoming the first undergraduate student union to be voluntarily recognized. That is, recognized by the college as the official representative of student workers. This development arose on a changing landscape of labor militancy throughout the U.S. As the Amazon Labor Union was entering the national spotlight, so did students at Iowa's Grinnell College formalize a union for all student employees. In doing so, Grinnell joined the ranks of other private colleges whose student laborers have successfully organized over the past few years. Kenyon, Dartmouth, Wesleyan, and, to an extent, Amherst. The recent history of student labor movements at Amherst begins in 2020 with the organizing team, founded by and for residential life student workers. The organizer team then evolved into the Union of Student Workers at Amherst College, which in the spring of 2021 disintegrated without signing official union paperwork. Now, the Amherst Labor Alliance is the biggest campus presence thanks to their highly visible efforts to amplify the needs of non-student employees via students' privileged position in relation to the administration. But, as Angel, an ALA leader, told us, Amherst's labor organizing also has its roots in a much larger tradition. But there's definitely a deep history of organizing on this campus. Um, one of the more recent ones was AC-DAC, Amherst College Direct Action Coordinating Committee. They were active for years, up until about 2020. Basically, the Direct, direct Action Coordinating Committee is an anti-imperialist, abolitionist group, and basically focused on working against those uh, problems as they man manifest at the college. Um, and like Molly was saying, it was born out of the Amherst Uprising movement, which is probably one of, if not the biggest movement that's happened at Amherst in recent years. Yeah. And that had a lot of lasting effects and is probably one of, that's inspired me a lot. A lot of the people who led and started that movement are really big inspirations to me because, I mean, the expansion of a bunch of the resource centers here is a result of that action. Hi, and welcome to Terrace Radiant. My name is Sam Spratford. And I'm Julie Kuiper. Over the past couple of weeks, we've sat down with Amherst community members who've been leaders in student organizing to better understand the specific challenges facing labor movements at private colleges and universities. How have these challenges manifested at Amherst in the most recent student labor movements? And what are the unique ways that each movement has approached these challenges? Stay tuned for all this and more on this episode of Terrace Radiant. First, we'll hear from Professor Brangan. Before coming to Amherst, she organized and served as the administrative liaison for the Cornell Graduate Students Union while working as a teaching assistant in the English department. I can just tell you kind of how it started. So my friend Kevin Duong, who um, now teaches politics at the University of Virginia, um, he approached me um, in the spring of 2014 um, and just said, hey, um, do you want to help start a union? And I said, yes. but. The reason why he um, and others had started to kind of think about unionization is because of um, a pattern of summer wage theft um, that was happening with teaching assistants mm -hmm. and research assistants um, where people would um, 
you know, basically sign a contract to do some work for the university over the summer. Um, and then they would either not get paid or not get paid as much as they had um, contracted for. So after talking with more students, we found out that it was a much bigger pattern um, and that it was happening and other things were happening um, mm -hmm. that were basically proving that, you know, we needed a union to advocate for ourselves as workers. And then we started organizing. Um, the efforts you know to unionize the students at Cornell students came from the fact that without the graduate students' work, the university would not be able to fulfill what it set out to do. Graduate students faced a lot of challenges, such as being underpaid for their work and experiencing a lack of housing, childcare, and things like dental insurance. However, they also faced challenges because of their vulnerable position as graduate students. Because I should also mention that graduate students are in a very precarious position when they're trying to advocate for themselves as workers in this institution that can make or break their yeah. future careers. That's why there's laws protecting them. So it's kind of a double bind for grad students because um, when they're doing the work that they're doing for the university, it's obviously productive work. Um, yeah. And the university needs them. But then they also need the university in the sense that if they do anything to piss off, like their, you know, research advisor yeah. or whatever, then that person will be like, I'm never going to write you a letter of recommendation. As you're go moving on through your career, um, trying to balance all of that and still advocate for yourself, you know, pretty scary for a lot of workers who are doing research in the sciences, had awful relationship with the, with the faculty that were supposed to be their mentors um, because they were being overworked. Mm -hmm. um, they were being asked to do things that were, you know, not within the scope of their employment. Um, and then that also happened um, to a lesser degree, and maybe even in some ways in a more hidden degree um, in the humanities and the social yeah. sciences. Um, so there was rampant exploitation going on everywhere. Uh -huh. And if the faculty was involved in that, then that was precisely the thing that we were trying to fix. Brangan's own personal experiences with labor also affected her views on the need to unionize. So. I can say that I actually did work nearly full-time when mm -hmm. I was an undergrad. Um, I went to the University of Washington and I worked to support myself um, with supplements from, you know, there's a little financial aid and also um, scholarships. Mm -hmm. um, and it was partly because I'm from a working class background and like mm -hmm. I worked to some extent since I was like a pretty young teenager. And I would say that like, that kind of made me uh, think of myself maybe more as a worker whenever I went mm -hmm. into graduate school. And it wasn't like a struggle for me. I didn't think about it in terms of like, am I really a worker? Or am I more a student? It's mm -hmm. like, no, I'm a worker. This is what I do. I work for a wage. And for graduate students, um, if they decide at a certain point that they wanted to get funding some other way, like apply for fellowships so they wouldn't have to teach, mm -hmm. then the university would cope. However, yeah. if, if, I, if I had decided to not show up for work and just like, you know, didn't get anybody to cover for me, um, and I did that, you know, several days in a row or whatever, mm -hmm. I was teaching my own courses as well. Mm -hmm. So I would not only be leaving my students in the lurch, they would not be getting taught, but I would also be, I would get fired, you know, and I wouldn't get paid. I was a worker. In that way, there's like not 
at least in that instance, there's not like a huge distinction um, because I was, you know, doing this work to support myself. And part of that is like, you know, depends on the class position. There's some graduate students who are from sort of wealthy backgrounds and stuff, and they can kind of be graduate students without needing a lot of, mm -hmm. you know, outside support or work or whatever. They're, of course, rare because people who have that kind of wealth are also rare. Yeah. Um, but the vast majority of people at Cornell who are doing that and the vast majority of graduate workers um, need that money mm -hmm. um, in order to be able to live. That's what they're doing. They're both students and they're workers. Yes. And like I mentioned before, that work is integral to the university functioning. A significant barrier the CGSU faced while trying to form a union was the administration. Brangan details that some of the faculty at Cornell were not supportive of a student union, and it affected their movement. So um, there's this guy <laughs> named Dave Cullum, mm -hmm. who was the chair of the chemistry department at Cornell, and he was explicitly, openly against the graduate union. In fact, 10 years prior to our mm -hmm. effort, there had been another effort to unionize, and he was also, like, at the head of the pack, like, advocating against this. And um, we suspected that he had um, kind of organized graduate students to do a anti-union group, like a kind mm -hmm. of um, against the union group that were uh, trying to get us to debate them and things like that. Plus he was also sending out various emails and things like that to um, faculty colleagues um, telling them like, we can't let them unionize that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. One thing that I learned a lot doing that administrative assisting or administrative mm -hmm. um, uh, liaising was how much the college did not want us to have a union. <laughs> Ultimately, the CGSU did not win their union election or get voluntarily recognized by the university. So we lost our election. Uh, mm -hmm. I might have mentioned that. And we lost it by a hair. And it was definitely because um, of interference, what we, mm -hmm. what we considered to be interference by the administration. They really didn't want us to unionize. In fact, they were charged with an unfair labor practice, which is mm -hmm. um, ULP for short. And basically we took them to arbitration and won. Uh, however, it wasn't enough to overturn the election or to get a mm -hmm. new election. What they'd done was send out a special edition of Ask the Dean, which was basically this um, questions from students, which we suspected were not questions mm -hmm. really, really <laughs> students, about like what happens when, you know, will the union like take all of our money and like that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Very, very classic anti-union kind of stuff. It's the anti-union playbook mm -hmm. through and through, but it was framed as this like, you know, asking the Dean. Yeah. And so there was an email sent out less than 24 hours before for the election that uh, basically threatened people's pay mm -hmm. or what, you know, any reasonable reader would, would read as that. Like, you know, well, you know, here, you know, sort of like, this is how it would affect the grants, mm -hmm. and, like all this stuff. So we were able to get that. And not to say that that was the one thing that lost it for us, but it was a, a buildup of a whole bunch of different stuff. It's not like CGSU doesn't exist anymore. It's mm -hmm. just that they have not been able to get the capacity to try again.
Brengan's effort to unionize Cornell graduate students proves that unionization, especially among students, is no easy task. However, some schools have successfully unionized, public universities in particular. But like at um, UMass, mm-hmm. where there are grad, there's a grad union, there's faculty unions, there's, you know, in the faculty mm-hmm. union is included every faculty as well as librarians. Um, there's several staff mm-hmm. unions. It's wall-to-wall unions. And there's yeah. a lot of um, solidarity between the unions as mm-hmm. well. And obviously there's di- differences in tasks, there's differences in pay, there's differences yeah. in class as well in a lot of you know instances, but there's still a lot of solidarity. And part of it has to do with like a union culture mm-hmm. that underlies that and everyone recognizes each other as being workers that are contributing their labor to the mm-hmm. university. I think at UMass, like my, my understanding, and this is just from talking to students mm-hmm. as well as faculty who I, I know over there, um, whenever you have unions sort of entrenched in an institution, mm-hmm. Um, it's not like everything goes smoothly all the time, but when there's more people around to, for example, when a contract comes up, um, everybody has an interest in seeing a su- you know, success. Yeah. Um, because it also means that the next time their contract comes up, people will be, you know, coming out in solidarity with them. Mm-hmm. So there's more of a, a kind of expectation that people will support um, the fights that, that people are going for. And, then, and therefore, people see their fights as being linked together. When we're talking about how and whether union cultures emerge, it's not just like it comes in just like this neat package of like, here is union culture. This is what union culture mm-hmm. is. It really is built. Yeah. It's built through action and it's built through, you know, intentionally going out and seeking out um, workers and trying to talk with them and I know just from talking to um sort of faculty colleagues friends of mine Mm -hmm. at UMass um it doesn't happen naturally. In terms of student and non-student worker solidarity at Amherst, Brangan voiced her support for the Amherst Labor Alliance. I think that they're good. I mean I think that there there's a long tradition of student solidarity with labor um a lot of them have taken the shape of um, anti-sweatshop movements. So mm-hmm. like um, demands, for example, for like athletic wear to be union made um, rather than mm-hmm. outsourced to like, you know, overseas sweatshops yeah. and things like that. And that's actually what um, the labor union or the labor solidarity for undergrad movement looked like at Cornell. Um, I do think that deeper organizing can come out of organizing for your own interests and collect and um, collectively Mm -hmm. others than trying to organize for the interests of others who are like you consider to be outside of you yeah right or like i think that solidarity and allyship are super important Mm -hmm. like i mentioned earlier with you know UMass having a a strong union culture that's very intentional Mm -hmm. and very like you know building it up all the time part of that is about like the recognition of each other as as workers obviously workers at different scales and and you know acknowledging potentially different positions in the university but still different scales 
Professor Brangan's experiences with the CGSU demonstrate the significant hardships that come with forming a student union, specifically administrative pushback and the lack of a union culture make organizing more difficult. Labor organizers at Amherst have faced similar challenges. Coming up, we discuss recent unionization efforts at Amherst with a graduate who organized to improve conditions for student residential life workers. Emotional labor is not something that we highly value um, and we don't, especially not in a monetized concept, but it is the stuff that makes our society go. And so in order to recognize its worth and its value, we need to pay the people who do this yeah. at their worth and at their value. So my name is Ella Peterson. I'm a graduate of the Amherst class of 2022. Um, I studied political science and economics, and a large part of what I did when I was on campus was working for ResLife, originally as a residential counselor for the 2019-2020 school mm -hmm. year, and then two years as a community advisor um, my junior and senior year. During the first couple of years of the COVID-19 pandemic, Ella was involved with the organizer team and the Union of Student Workers at Amherst College, or USWAC. Her awareness of the need to organize primarily grew out of an acute incident working as a resident counselor during her sophomore year. First got into organizing within residential life because there was a very dangerous situation on my floor my sophomore year. I was 19. I had gone through like the two weeks of RC training, which was a lot of like how to fill out forms. Mm -hmm. Um and other sort of things to that effect. But there was a student who needed a lot more help and a lot more resources than the college was really able to offer. And um, my supervisor, I kept trying to, to tr try to like get more attention on the situation because I was like, this isn't going well. Mm -hmm. um, this is dangerous. This is bad. Um, and it, it wasn't, happening like it wasn't it like I it wasn't getting the attention like the the system was failing mm -hmm. and the system was failing this person and it was also failing me and it was failing all of the members of the floor specifically like my mom and my therapist like were pointing this out where they were like this work is giving you panic attacks and you are having difficulty sleeping through the night and I was like and I'm being paid $2,200 a semester <laughs> um, to do this. For me, it wasn't even originally fully about the money. It was about like the resources. I wanted training. I wanted, I wanted to know how to manage the situation. Like I wanted to, I wanted to be supported. I wanted, I wanted more accountability from my supervisor. I wanted, so I just wanted it to run better. Like, yeah. am I being set up to succeed in this role? Yeah. Like, and for me, that the the conundrum was like no I'm not or at least at that time the answer was no I'm not mm -hmm. um and so I that was initially why then I was drawn into any amount of organizing but Ella told us that it was only because this experience coincided with some key moments in her intellectual development that she became intensely involved in organizing specifically Ella was learning a new way of conceiving of student labor. Around the time the like the actual talk of unionizing was heating up, I was in a class on identity politics mm -hmm. and I was also in a class um, called Economics of Race and Gender 
Um, the identity of politics class is no longer offered. The professor no longer teaches at Amherst. But Economics of Race and Gender is taught by Jessica Wolfall Reyes, mm-hmm. um, who is a wonderful professor in the economics department. And so between the, like between those two classes, in addition to then what the organizing that we were trying to do, because we were getting connected to all these union people, I started reading a lot about like labor organizing. And I started reading a lot about like women's work and like economics and women's work. Mm-hmm. And so all of these things were fusing together in the spring of my junior year. Um, and so then I think then that's when I turned it into like talking in more Marxist economic terms or like when I started feeling more comfortable, like adopting and saying, no, 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 we are part of the labor movement. I think that's when I became most comfortable using that terminology. Um, and it was the the coalescence of um Oh, just a lot of different parts of my life. Yeah. Professor Brangan's struggles with the Cornell administration are not isolated. In general, college administrations tend to perpetrate a narrative that student labor organizing is destructive to the educational experience because it warps a supposedly symbiotic relationship between students and administrators into an antagonistic employer-employee relationship. Based on Ella's experience, these narratives are even more blinding when it comes to emotional labor. Community creation, like that's the heart of the job. And like, that's what they, that's why people do it. And that's why I continue to do it. Even though I had a lot of mixed feelings about working for ResLife, Um, it was, it was all about creating community and that's not conventional work, right? It's, it's, it's very foundational to the college, but it doesn't look like, um, uh, you know, doing a shift at the dining hall. It looks very different. Um, I personally think that culturally we have a big issue devaluing that sort of soft work. Um, And we say, no, 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 this is about relationships. This is about people. Like, why are you trying to monetize this? Um, And I think it's actually rooted very strongly um, in uh, a lot of honestly, patriarchal notions about emotional labor and the worth of emotional labor. And I, this is actually something that I wrote about in some of my academic classes, which was always an interesting fusion um, uh, to, to talk about like people like Arleigh Hochschild who coined the phrase emotional labor. Sp- very specifically, she was describing jobs like air stewardesses, where their role is to regulate their own emotions for the sake of the customer, for the sake of the client, right? Like, you know, their job is to be friendly and hospitable and open and forward forward being. And the goal of that is to then make sure that the, the client has the best possible experience. And so CAs are maybe one of the most extreme examples of that kind of emotional regulation where you are a public private figure in that if you're doing your job well, you are supposed to be somebody who people can always look up to and always come to with their problems. And you should be able to regulate wherever you are in your day and in your life in order to meet and to accommodate them. Right. And so uh, that's not something that's a, that's a skill set that we demand of lots of people in our lives. Um, Particularly we demand it of a lot of the women, regardless whether or not this is considered formally compensated Ella's initial foray into organizing was with the organizer team, which began its work in the spring of 2020. In their prospectus, the organizer team enumerated a list of demands for res life, including, but not limited to, adequate compensation, better professional support for resident counselors, and formal communication about the precise responsibilities of the RCs. Crucially, the organizer team was not a union. 
Ella and her peers were actually encouraged to make that move by the more union-conscious student workers at the University of Massachusetts. So we had made these connections uh, with, with folks over at UMass, which is the oldest undergraduate student union in the United States, and it's just up the street from where you yeah. all are. Wow. And so we got affiliated with those folks because we were just trying to organize and they were like, look, what you're doing is really great. You should make it formal. Like the way that you enshrine these protections and like everything that you guys have fought for and some of the things that you've won, the way that you make it so they can't take it away is you need a union. Mm-hmm. Um, and like so much of the work that we were already doing was just so close to unionizing. And so like as somebody who certainly in the beginning, in the early days, I was like, oh, a union. I don't know if that's for us. Um, to then where we were in spring of 2021 was like, no, this is for us. This is actually what we are doing. We are organizing people. We are trying to collectivize our power. We are trying to get good faith negotiations with the administration. You know, we are basically, we are doing all the things that a union would do and so actually having a, an, a real a real union and, get, and getting that recognition would mm-hmm. be massive in terms of our legal rights. So then there was also some research that went in. Could we legally unionize? Of course, USWAC never actually signed union cards, much like the CGSU. But Ella is still proud of the work they did, both to improve the working conditions of ResLife student employees in the short term and to invigorate the possibility of unionization. Um, I'm proud of what we were able to do for each other, for other workers. I'm proud of the the big leaps uh, that we had to make. And there is always reason to believe that people's conditions can and will improve if only they take it upon themselves um, to make it so. Just as USWAC's efforts were dying down, a new labor advocacy group rose on Amherst's campus. The Amherst Labor Alliance has a different focus from USWAC, at least at face value. Their mission is to leverage student power vis-a-vis the college administration to improve the material conditions of non-student workers. Though Ella agrees with the ALA's mission in principle, she voiced doubts about their strategy. There's a long legacy at Amherst College of union busting and anti-labor sentiment, okay? Like, that's just point blank. And so, but one of the big internal conversations of USWAC was, and pre- previous to USWAC, mm-hmm. was the logic always was if students have the most privilege on campus in order to be, like, safe um, from retaliation by the administration. Yeah. If we unionize first and we can get mm-hmm. formal union recognition and we can get real union resources on campus, then we can unionize everybody else. The reality is you cannot unionize from the outside. And so I have a lot of respect for what they've tried to do in order to empower the workers yeah, at, yeah. at Amherst College. But there is a fundamental reality. And like one of the reasons why I was never super involved with their work is because fundamentally like you cannot create a union for other people. Only people can make a union for themselves. Um, and I didn't have a lot of conversations with the, the folks from ALA. I have a lot of kind of respect for the attention that they sh- tried to do and like the awareness raising. I think all of that is super important, but also on a certain level, like there are some basics of what it means to to be a labor organizer and like what the realities of that are. And a fundamental one is like, 
you cannot do it for other people. The people have to want it for themselves. In our final conversation with two ALA organizers, we dive into the reasons why the ALA is currently focused on improving non-student labor conditions and how this fits into the broader struggle to empower labor at private colleges. Sure. Um, I'm Angel Musimi. I'm a senior. I'm a film and media studies major, uh, doubled with Black Studies. And uh, yeah, I'm also part of ALA. Um, I'm Molly. I'm Molly Hartenstein. I'm also a senior, class of 23. I'm a political science and math double major. Um, I'm in too many clubs, but one of them that I care probably the most about is ALA. Yeah, we're actually like working on finding a sustainable and non-hierarchical, har- hierarchical. I mean, <laughs> a, a, a horizontal and sustainable model of leadership. So now we assign things to committees and then within those people take on labor. Um, so like I'm on the teaching committee and the information committee. There. Yeah, like I'm in the steering committee, which is kind of like... Yes generally like oversees what goes on in the group. The ALA initially formed in the fall of 2021 in response to what Angel and Molly explained were exploitative working conditions for Valentine Dining Hall staff. So first kind of like what the specific impetus was. Um, It was actually Loki the Amherst student um, because Kaylin McQuilkin was uh, assigned an article about labor shortages and nationwide labor shortages and what they look like on our campus and so in her interviewing of staff she was like oh my god this is terrible and it's not like because there's a labor shortage but this is like what is happening and no one has asked people these questions before or dealt with these issues before um and so that inspired her to be like hello people who care about issues like this come together let's talk about it and then like from there the ALA was born and so I think something interesting to consider is like part of the specific impetus was a nationwide labor shortage that was partially due to COVID that was due to like the economy whatever that means Um, and a lot of in the beginning a lot of our conversation was around like what does COVID safety look like in Val and for workers on this campus and why aren't people getting hazard pay and people weren't getting hazard pay for a long time or only I think they only got hazard pay for like a sixth or eight month span of the pandemic. Um, And so that was kind of like what made us be like to start to dig under the surface and then find all the other things that Angel can talk about. But yeah, some of the things that were happening were like what I was saying with people getting penalized and even yelled at in front of students for trying to talk to students. Mm -hmm. People just getting harassed in general in just a toxic environment with... Exactly. Managers just like imposing their power over workers by just yelling at them publicly um, about anything. Yeah, I think there's two issues, like two big ones. Like we can kind of bucket the issues into like... um, a two-tiered employment system and a lack of like adequate compensation so like um there's just a whole category of people here who are not benefits eligible no matter how many hours they work that's written into their contract that is allowed in the state of massachusetts and amherst taking advantage of that um there's also just that like 
people are not getting paid enough for the work they're doing. They didn't get hazard pay. They saw a slight increase after inflation was really bad and haven't seen one recently since the spring. Um, and yeah, so that's kind of like a big issue. And then the other big issue is kind of like a hostile workplace environment, which is like a lot of the specifics that Angel gave, but also that people, um, not just a hostile workplace environment, to like individuals but like at an institutional level so like for example when people sign contracts they aren't told where those contracts are kept or given a copy of them to see so they like cannot actually see what they are contractually obligated to do there's also the fact that there's not really a reliable way for them to report those issues to anyone to Angel and Molly, the key to rectifying these issues was first and foremost to raise awareness around campus, particularly among the student body. Something we realized early on at the beginning of last fall um, was that the reason why these things continue to happen is because not enough people care about them, which sometimes is a choice, but more often than not is not enough people knowing about them. And so we won't be successful in our goals unless we also educate people about why these things matter and then hopefully they understand and then want to join us and, and advocate for um, workers too. The ALAs teach in events and in particular their protests during high profile events like the spring 2022 admitted students day are all directed towards this goal of consciousness raising. Oh, so we're just going to plan a number of teach-ins throughout the semester. So we did our first one I know. Um, we did our first one last semester. Um, that was really cool. Like 50, 60 people came. We got Bobo for everybody and just talked about like what labor conditions on this campus look like and why this is an issue people should care about. Um, and we're going to continue to do that, but we're also going to con consider kind of like what political education looks like around these issues and kind of furthering education. We had two big campaigns in the spring semester. One was uh, entirely social media based, but around May Day, which is May 1st, we did a campaign on hostile work environments at Val where we like essentially um, dealt with specific issues that we had heard from staff that we tried to bring to the forefront of students' minds and hopefully raise awareness about. For example, like not being, uh, being told you can't speak Spanish at work, um, which is a federal labor law violation. Yeah. The weekend of admitted students, day but it was weekend and um city street city streets were the same time and so we hung up five or six banners all over campus that read things like at trustees where's the money going amherst exploits staff raise val wages um just like different slogans um which i think was pretty successful a lot of people saw it even people who were like admitted students like dm'd our instagram and were like I feel so much better com like coming to Amherst knowing there is a culture of student organizing here and like I'd love to get involved when I get here and stuff like that. Though their immediate efforts are directed towards non-student labor, Angel and Molly made it clear that their organizing is not separate from the goal of student labor organizing, but rather creates the consciousness among student laborers to realize that their positions vis-a-vis -vis the college are fundamentally similar to those of non-student laborers. Their focus on non-student employees is simply a response to the fact that they are in greater need of protections. Well, I think part of what Molly was talking about with consciousness raising is to actually see those similarities a little more clearly to understand yeah. that we are all workers, all employed by the college and that we are at the same status. But that being said, there's arguably more protections for students on this campus than there are for a lot of the 
actual employees who work in the dining hall. And we could say that that's because a lot of us are paying tuition and this, the Amherst has more of an investment to actually treat their student workers yeah. better. Because Massachusetts is an at-will state, which means that like no matter what, I'm pretty sure, you should double check this as the reporters, but uh, I'm pretty sure that you can get fired without cause pretty much like whenever. So that means that like they cannot expel us or whatever without like for any reason. I don't think, I hope not, um, but they can fire people. But also we've talked about this too, like we're not opposed to furthering rights for student workers as well, or like considering like what real solidarity between not just students and staff, but like between student workers looks like. Um, because I think, you know, all work under capitalism is exploitation. So we are all being exploited to a certain extent, right? And it's important to help the people who are being exploited the most first, um, because at the end of the day, even if I get fired from my student jobs, I can go back to my room and eat at Val the next day and I will like be fine. My like survival is not reliant upon these jobs in the same way. Although for some students it is right, which is something to talk about too. But this um, past homecoming weekend, the ALA spearheaded a pledge campaign among Amherst alums to withhold donations until Val labor conditions improve. They're optimistic that this sort of financial pressure in combination with greater political pressure from students will motivate the administration to act. With it being homecoming weekend, obviously a bunch of alumni are coming in, and we're gonna try and get people to pledge not to give any money to Amherst until that happens, um, until these workers are gonna be treated better and paid better. I think Amherst makes like $25 million a year or something from gifts, and of course, like the millionaires who give that money probably won't sign the pledge, but a lot of people will. Um, and the school puts so much effort into getting that money that I think they, maybe, you know, maybe we can hit them where it hurts. Though Amherst doesn't yet have an official union, like Wesleyan or Dartmouth, our conversations with Ella, Angel, and Molly have hopefully made it clear that the labor movement is only getting stronger on this campus. Despite their strategic differences, the organizer team, USWAC, and the ALA are part of a broader effort to empower workers at Amherst through consciousness raising and by leveraging the collective power of the student body. Professor Brangan acknowledged that worker solidarity is hard at a place like Amherst because of the lack of pre-existing unions. This hinders the ability of workers to combat administrative resistance and among organizers in their efforts to raise awareness because there's no so-called union culture to feed off of. But this certainly hasn't stopped student organizers from fighting. My, my, my personal belief is that every worker deserves a union, but mm -hmm. it doesn't come like ready-made most of the time. Mm -hmm. Most of the time you have to fight for it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Terrace Radiant. This semester, we're publishing every three weeks, so make sure you turn on show notifications on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcast fix. In the meantime, be sure to check out at Amherst Student on Instagram and Twitter so you don't miss anything we're up to. Once again, my name is Sam. And I'm Julie. And thank you for joining us.